Good morning. This is a little unusual. Where's my guitar? I feel a little naked. Misty's still here, though. No, don't leave Misty. Just kidding. <laughs> I need some support. <laughs> I was putting on this microphone this morning, um, and it's like this nice creamy tan color. I was like, man, that should be clear, because like, the last time I had a tan was like never. I don't think, I don't think I've ever had a tan. So. <laughs> it's probably showing up nice and nice and bold. <laughs> All right, let's begin this morning. I was thinking about uh, this morning, has anybody ever left a dog unattended at their house for too long? Or, you have, or have you ever seen the video? There's a video out there, I know one in particular, um, the dog like literally tore the couch to pieces, like pulled out the stuff. Have you seen that video? And the people come home, and it's the responsible people, the owners that have to clean up the mess, right? And so I was thinking about this morning, uh, I am the dog, basically, and Angelo and John, God bless them, will be cleaning my mess for the next two weeks. So <laughs> appreciate that. Thank you. And, you know, I'm going to apologize in advance, Angelo and John, uh, for the pee on the carpet. I'm sorry. All right. My bad. Right. You might want to check behind the couch, too. Just saying. All right. It's not going to get any better than that. That was the highlight of the sermon, guys, by the way. So I hope you like that. All right, so hopefully there's a picture behind me of a wonderful gentleman. This is General Gregor McGregor, and I'm not making that name up. His parents named him Gregor McGregor. If you don't think that's possible, I'm here to tell you it is, because my brother-in-law, who happens to be an identical twin, his name is Donald McDonald. (laughs) Anyone want to guess what his brother's name is? Identical twin brother, Ronald and Donald McDonald. That's right. (laughs) My mother-in-law's here. She knows it's true. <laughs> so, yeah, Gregor MacGregor, great name. We should have named Z- uh, Zachary Couch McCouch, but oh well. <laughs> Missed that opportunity. He was born in 1786 uh, in Britain and by all accounts uh, had a normal childhood. Normal, born to normal parents, uh, had a good upbringing, but he thirsted for something more. He wanted adventure. He was the kind of kid who just, he wanted to be out doing stuff and finding stuff. And so when he got in his uh, late teens, uh, early adulthood, uh, he decided he was going to join the British Army, which he did. And because he wanted adventure, he signed up to go to Venezuela to fight for Venezuelan independence. He did that. Venezuelan gained their independence. After that, because he wanted more adventure, he just kind of went from war to war, kind of in South America, uh, fighting with different groups. And he gained quite a bit of prestige because of that. Um, He got to be fairly well known to the fact, or to the point that, uh, he actually married Simone Bolivar's uh, cousin. So he had kind of risen up uh, through the ranks. And eventually, he worked himself into a position where he actually became the prince of Poyais. Poyais, if you don't know, uh, is a really small country. It's about 800, or not sorry, 800, 8 million acres on the Mosquito Coast, uh, which is kind of modern-day Honduras along the coastline there. So he became the prince of Poyais. Uh, Poyais uh, is an interesting place. Um, it was extremely prosperous for a, such a small country. Um, it had a really healthy trade of South American goods all across the world. Um, it had a lot of natural resources. 
It had a good deep water port, which was really important at that particular time because uh, you needed ships to be able to get in, right? Uh, so it had a good deep water port. Um, it had a very moderate climate, which is unusual for the area, but the advantage was that uh, it didn't really have a lot of the tropical diseases you would typically find. Um, so it was really a great place. It also had a wonderful capital uh, that had been built by uh, European settlers called St. Joseph. Uh, so uh, it had a lot of civic buildings that kind of had uh, European architecture. Um, it was just kind of an a idyllic place that he wound up. Well, him and the king uh, decided that Poyes, as a country, needed to continue to expand and grow. So the native people were called Poyes, and they wanted to help them expand economically uh, and just be more vibrant. And so they came up with a plan that the prince of Poyes, Gregor McGregor, would travel, uh, sail over to Britain to bring funds uh, to uh, get European people to go over with him and help him settle and expand the country. So he sailed in 1821. He went to Britain, and he brought a lot of stuff with him. Um, I think uh, we, we saw earlier the flag of Poyes. He brought that, the green and white flag. Uh, he brought some of their currency, uh, which was issued uh, by the Bank of Poyes, the National Bank. Uh, he took guidebooks. He took testimonials from the locals. Um, he took the National Coat of Arms. Um, anything he could think of uh, that could kind of help demonstrate what kind of country this was. But what he took to sell was a couple of different things. One was a land grant, right? So he was selling 100-acre land grants to people who wanted to uh, invest in Poyes. And he sold a lot of land grants. People were very excited because there was a great opportunity for wealth in this country. He also uh, sold uh, commissions in the military. So unlike now where you kind of have to you know, go to school and work your way up, you could just buy a position. So he sold colonelships and, I don't know, is that a word? Colonelships? It's a word now. <laughs> colonelships and lieutenantships and all kinds of ships. <laughs> he might have sold ships. I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> uh, he also sold civil service uh, positions. None, uh, regardless, he sold all this stuff. And he got everyone all excited, man. They were all ready to go to Poyes. They were going to they were gonna get rich. They were going to grow the country. And so everyone uh, who decided they wanted to actually go, not just invest, but go, loaded a ship and sailed for Poyes. Unfortunately, after all his hard work, Gregor McGregor was not able to go on that journey. He stayed back. He had something he had to take care of in Paris. So rather than sail to the New World in the country that he had become prince of, he went to Paris. He went to Paris with $550 million of equivalent today's money. It wasn't it was some other kind of pounds back then. But it was equivalent of $550 million that people had invested in Poyes. People sailed to Poyes, and as they approached the coast, they found uninhabited wild jungle. Because see, Poyes doesn't exist. It didn't exist then. It doesn't exist now. It was all fabricated by Gregor McGregor. Matter of fact, Gregor McGregor is now known as the king of conmen um, for pulling off this stunt. But see, 
I don't know how many of you maybe already knew this story, but those of you who didn't, I saw a lot of faces. People were like, wow, that sounds like a great place. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? No tropical disease, money, natural resources. Man, I'm going, right? All fabricated. All the stuff you saw, the flag, the coat of arms, all were made up by Gregor McGregor. He was a complete fraud. He lived the rest of his life. I wish I could say he died a terrible death, but he didn't. (laughs) He took all the money and went to South America and just lived off the money for the rest of his life. (laughs) So quite a a scam. (laughs) It's a good story, right? (laughs) Yeah. Fraud. (laughs) Everyone loves a good fraud story. (laughs) So let's turn now to the disciples. (laughs) And let's look at some of the things that the disciples lived through. So what did the disciples see as they walked earth with Jesus? Yeah, there we go. Okay. What did they see? Well, of course, they saw Jesus teaching. He profound teacher. He spoke with authority and truth. They saw that. But they also saw miracles. Miracles upon miracles. So you don't have to count them unless you think I'm just a dishonest person. There are 35 instances of the word miracle on the screen right now. Because there are 35 accounted for miracles in the Gospels that we read today. Now, I'm a believer that these are the 35 that were recorded. But I can almost guarantee you he performed more miracles than that. Countless more miracles than that. But let's look at some of the miracles. For instance, he healed lepers. He healed people that were blind from birth. One of my favorite healings is the one with the centurion, right? Where the centurion guard came up to him and said, you know, I've got a servant back home who is sick. Will you come and heal him? And Jesus said, yeah, I'll go with you. And he said, no, no, you don't need to come. Just say the words, and I know that he'll be healed. Love that story. And he healed him just with his voice, just with his power. The disciples saw that. Man, this guy can heal from afar, right? He fed 5,000, 8,000 people with a couple fishes and a couple loaves, right? And the disciples who followed him, they were the ones that went around and gathered up all the baskets of food that were left over. So he started with a couple fish, a couple pieces of bread, and they gathered basket upon basket of leftovers. They were part of that. They saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. That's a miracle right there. That's amazing. (laughs) They saw demons cast out. They were on the boat. We talked about this in one of our sermons recently where Jesus was woken up so he could calm the storm. He calmed the storm with his voice. He walked on water. He cursed a fig tree that withered. That's one of those weird ones. I like that one. He did all of these things, all of these miracles, and the disciples were there all the time to witness those. I bring that up to say this. How do you think... The disciples reacted after seeing all of that. And this is the contrast. This is why we talked about Gregor McGregor. See, what Jesus did wasn't just a bunch of words. He didn't come and sell a good story and tell you all the great things about following him. He didn't just give you a bill of goods, right? He lived it. He demonstrated his power on this earth, and they saw it time and time again. They saw him perform those miracles over and over. So it wasn't that they were just being told great things. They saw great things. 
So what was their reaction? Let's take a look. Here we're going to look at the story of Judas. So if you want, you can turn your Bibles. We're going to be in Mark uh, chapter 14, verse 43 through 49. It'll be on the screen as well. You don't necessarily have to look it up. Read with me here. It says, and this is after Jesus had uh, spent time in the Garden of Gethsemane praying and preparing uh, for what eventually would come about. It says in verse 43, and immediately while they were still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a multitude with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now he who was betraying him had given them a signal saying, whomever I shall kiss, he is the one, seize him and lead him away under guard. And after coming, he immediately went to him saying, Rabbi, and kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But a certain one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as against a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But this has happened that the scriptures might be fulfilled. So we don't really know the motivation for why Jesus, Judas chose to betray Jesus. There's a lot of ideas, a lot of theories, right? Was it, it could have been solely greed. Uh, obviously, I think that was part of his character. Um, he, I think part of it, he wanted the money. That could have been a factor. Uh, could have been that he gave himself over to Satan, that he was in a position to be manipulated by Satan. I think that's definitely probably a high degree of possibility. It's also possible, though, that he saw Jesus as a fraud himself. And you say, well, how's that possible? Exactly. How is that possible? The man they had just seen uh, perform all these miracles, how could he possibly be viewed as a fraud? Well, it could be because Judas and the other disciples, and again, this is just a theory, but they saw him potentially as a political leader. They thought he was going to take over, he was going to restore Jerusalem to its rightful place, he was going to rule over the government, right? He was going to like restore all the things to Jerusalem away from the Roman Empire. But he didn't. Because that wasn't why he came, is it? (laughs) They didn't know that. So it could have been that he was just fed up with waiting for Jesus to do what he thought he should do. It's possible. So he turned Jesus over, despite all the fact that he had seen all the miracles and heard all the teachings of Jesus. He still turned him over to be betrayed. But it turns out Judas, even in his betrayal, was kind of a fraud. He was a fraud on two fronts. One, he proclaimed to be a follower of Christ, yet he betrayed him. But then after he betrayed him, he wasn't even very good at that because uh, he went back on that. He's like, oh, what have I done? I've done this wrong. I'm not even good at that. And he ultimately ended up hanging himself. <laughs> what we see from the life of Judas is that despite all the things that he saw, in the end he had no real commitment to Christ. He wasn't truly a committed follower of Christ in the end. So the question I asked myself as I was pondering that and thinking through uh, what Judas did, Judas who had seen all these things, who had been with Christ for all these uh, years, and let's not forget was chosen by Christ, 
to be his follower, to be his disciple. It wasn't just a random following. I started thinking to myself, am I any different than Judas? Am I any less of a fraud in some occasions, the way I behave? You know, am I a true disciple or am I an uncommitted pretender? And I think the truth is that sometimes I'm not who I should be. I'm not the disciple that I should be or the committed follower that I should be. You know, Pastor John loves to talk about traffic. I don't know, I've never ridden with Pastor John. But as much as he talks about traffic, I got to think it's probably pretty bad. <laughs> right? Okay. Just because uh, he's always bringing up traffic and how you behave in traffic. You know, like we like to talk about the things that, that really irritate us the most, right? So I don't know. I'm not accusing Pastor John, but I imagine maybe he's got some confessions to do on Saturday morning after he spent a week in traffic. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> but I'm not that much different. I do things um, in my life that don't reflect what I say I believe. <laughs> I'm just like Judas in some ways. I'm a fraud. (laughs) I say I'm a committed Christian, but then I act another way. And I think if we were all honest with ourselves, that's probably the case. (laughs) But what I love about the end of that story is what it says right here. Jesus said to them, this has happened that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And that's the hope that I want to bring you this morning. Despite the fact that Judas was a fraud and I'm a fraud, and you may be a fraud on occasion. God's plan will not be thwarted. He still is going to use you for his glory and for his good. That's a truth we can hold on to. Let's look at the second way the disciples reacted at the end of Jesus' life. We're going to pick that story back up in Mark 50. So after he said that, after uh, Judas uh, kissed him and betrayed him and he was arrested, it says this, and they all left him and fled. Not some of them, not a handful. (laughs) They all left him and fled. And we see this most clearly uh, if we skip down to verse 66 and the denials that Peter made. So read with me there. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you too were with Jesus the Nazarene. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are talking about. And he went out onto the porch. And then a maid saw him and began saying more, and began once more to say to the bystanders, this is one of them, meaning one of Jesus' disciples. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean too. But he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man you are talking about. (laughs) And immediately a cock crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, before a cock crows twice, you will deny me three times, and he began to weep. (laughs) You see, Peter and the other disciples chose fear over faith. They chose to react in fear as opposed to standing steadfast in faith. (laughs) And much like the question we asked about Judas, I asked myself again, do I live in fear? Do I do things that demonstrate 
a lack of faith, that demonstrate that I have fear that I ought not have as a believer in Christ. And undoubtedly, I do. I think of a couple things in particular. Um, having that opportunity to share your faith with someone, a stranger, or even worse, someone you know, <laughs> someone you see every day, like a coworker, right? And that time comes when you're supposed to share your faith, and you just buckle, <laughs> and you don't do it. I've done that. <laughs> done that. <laughs> what about being afraid of the future? Do we believe the scripture that says not to worry about what we will eat and what we will wear and the things that we will do? Or do we not? Or do we still worry and fret about those things? About how am I going to get food on the table and how am I going to live? And then the big one, of course, what about death? (laughs) Every poet since the dawn of time has written about that subject, right? Death is a scary thing because of the finality of it, right? For humanity, the complete separation, the end of our lives on earth. But as Christ believers, do we fear that? Should we fear that? Should we fear death? Probably not, because I would say that the Bible is very clear on the fact that we will go to be with him and we will live forever with him in glory. So as believers in Christ, we ought not fear that. But we do. I know I do. There's been multiple times in my life where I have feared some tragic ending uh, to my life, and I was scared. (laughs) I didn't want to leave my family and my kids. Um, I didn't want to leave earth, yet I knew that there was a place beyond this. That would be so much better, so much glorious, but my life didn't reflect that. My behaviors didn't reflect that belief. I was cowering in fear. It is possible, however, to not live like that, to live your life in complete faith and obedience to Christ. There's a great example of that. Um, Hopefully up on the screen, we have a picture of a family back from the 1940 time frame. (laughs) This is the Ten Boom family. Probably a lot of you have heard uh, the story or read the book, right? The Ten Boom family uh, lived in Netherlands, and they owned a watch shop, and they lived in a, a little apartment above the watch shop. You know, they were modest. They were probably middle class. Made a good living. They were a tight-knit family with deep, deep convictions about their Christian faith. When the Nazis took over the Netherlands, it became quite apparent that uh, they were going to continue their program of rounding up Jews, right, and sending them away to concentration camps. So the Ten Booms were approached by some Jewish uh, believers, some Jewish people, friends that they had, and asked to assist. And because of their faith, they chose to follow that. They chose to provide that assistance, knowing the dangers that existed. They kind of, uh, their house became somewhat of a hotbed of anti-Nazi activity. (laughs) Um, To the point where, ultimately, uh, a couple of Jewish uh, families escaped immediate arrest and and conviction and fled to their house and they decided that they would hide them in their house knowing at that juncture they knew that the penalty for that was also being arrested themselves. And so they built uh, a false wall. Uh, The book, if you haven't ever read, is called The Hiding Place. So they built a hiding place, if you will. Um, There's going to be a picture up here that kind of gives you uh, an idea of what it looks like. Uh, So that's the wall knocked out uh, it's a museum now, so I think that's, you can read stuff there on the wall. <laughs> uh, 
but there's a, a portion of the wall knocked out, so there was like a four-foot gap by ten-foot long uh, fake wall that hit a little area where they would hide the Jews. And this little uh, door at the bottom, there's a door in the back of that bookshelf that raised up so that the, the Jews could crawl in there uh, if the Nazis were going were gonna to come in. And that second picture, there's a second picture that shows uh, the little opening there. You could crawl in there, right? All right. So they chose to make that decision uh, to follow their convictions, to live their lives in faith, that even if the worst came true, that they were caught, that it was worth it to live their lives in faith. And knowing that, even if that happened, God would still take care of them. Unfortunately, someone uh, that they knew uh, came to visit, found out what was going on, and turned them into the Nazis. Their house was raided. They were all arrested. Miraculously, they didn't find the hiding place. So the Jews that were hidden at that very moment were able to stay in the house, and once it was cleared out, they were able to escape. And I think they probably found safety at another place. But the ten booms, the entire family was arrested and were taken away to prisons. A couple things uh, that are remarkable that happened after that. Uh, The father... Uh, who was 80 years old, or maybe more, a little more than 80 years old, um, he was offered the opportunity to be released because of his age. The Germans said, you know what, you can go. Just promise us you're going to be good from now on. Don't. And he said, he said to them, if you let me go, I will help the first person who comes and asks me for help. He chose prison. He died 10 days later, I think they said. Um, he chose to stay, right? What happened to, to Corey Tenboom, who's the writer of the book, and her sister Betsy? Uh, they stayed in local prison for a couple of years. And then ultimately they were shipped out to Ravensbrook. Uh, they were transported by train. Ravensbrook was one of the notorious work camps specifically for women. Uh, as you can imagine, <laughs> concentration camp, this is the, uh, the conditions were terrible. But they kept up their spirit. There are so many stories that came out of that of people who were lifted up by them. They smuggled a Bible into Ravensbrook, Betsy and her sister Corey. And they taught Bible lessons to the Jews that were also being housed there. And they were subjected to hard labor. Yet they stayed the course. Betsy didn't survive. Um, The conditions were as such at the concentration camp that uh, the mortality rate was very high. But Corey did. And she was able to tell the story of the faith of her family and what they did, knowing that there were great repercussions, yet they still followed forward in faith. (laughs) And they were rewarded. I believe that they were rewarded in heaven. It's a great story if you haven't read it. So what can we do? What does this mean to us? Let's look at Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. This to me is why we can have faith and why we can live in authenticity. Because of these verses, let's read. And when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome, Salome, something, bought spices that they might come and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away 
although it was extremely large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He is not here. He is risen. And that's the message right there. (laughs) The reason that the ten booms were able to live their life in faith is because he's risen. Death was not the end of his story. He rose to reign. We also see that exemplified in the very disciples we just talked about, the ones who demonstrated to be frauds in some cases, just like us, and demonstrated that they would run and hide in fear, just like we do. Once they saw the risen Jesus, it all changed. All changed. Those same disciples who ran in fear began to preach in boldness, so much so that they were also ultimately arrested, and many of them went to their deaths proclaiming the truth of the resurrection of Christ. So I don't know about you, but to me, there's no way to explain how a group of people who had seen what they saw, yet still ran in fear, would then reverse course 180 degrees and go the other direction only way to explain that is because they saw the risen Christ. And because of that, we can have our faith rooted in the fact that Christ rose. (laughs) Right? We can live in that truth. We can follow Christ no matter what. So this is what I want to wrap up with saying to you this morning. Are you living a life of fraud? Like me, are you making, are you saying one thing and living another? <laughs> I'm not perfect, so don't, don't think I'm condemning you. But are you saying one thing? Are you telling people about Christ? And are you going home and looking at pornography on the internet? Are you a fraud? I say turn and follow because Christ is risen, man. You can turn from that. Are you absorbed In alcoholism, is it consuming you? I say turn and follow because Christ is risen. Are you living a life in adultery or idolatry? That's the one that gets me. I got some pretty nice stuff, man. I like that stuff. I say turn and follow because Christ is risen. We can get past all that stuff. Are you living your life in fear? When it's your time to share your testimony with those around you, are you living in fear? Are you running away from that? I say turn and follow. We've got the truth right here in our hands. Christ is risen. Man, let's stand on that. Are you scared of dying? I know there's times I am, but you know what? Turn from that fear and follow Christ is risen. That is the news we can stand on. It's the truth. It's the reason the disciples went to their deaths proclaiming it. Because they saw the risen Christ. 
we can take that testimony, we can live it, we can stand on it, and we can turn and we can follow Christ. Pray with me this morning. (laughs) Father, we just thank you so much for that. That we saw the truth. Father, that the disciples demonstrated the reality of your resurrection in their lives. That we have the example of people like the Ten Booms who have demonstrated for us that we can live without fear. We can live in boldness. We can live in the truth of your resurrection. Father, thank you for that. I just pray for each and every one in this congregation. I pray for myself. Father, that uh, when I come to those moments where I want to live and do things counter to what I say is right and what I know to be true, and when I get gripped by fear, uh, that I would just remember that you are risen. And that means you're here with me in spirit, and you're reigning on high, and you're in control of all things. And I don't have to be living in fear. I don't have to do things that are contrary to what I believe because they make me feel good because the only thing that I really want is you. The only thing I need is you. Father, I pray that for each and every one that you would just make that reality just ever present in our minds. That you would help us to stand fast on the truth of your resurrection, Father. Father, we love you. Father, we want and desire to serve you. Help us do that to the best of our ability. In Christ's name, amen.